Instead of the passage listed in the bulletin, I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18 is my text. Words obviously written by the same man who wrote our unison scripture reading this morning. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. When people express an interest in becoming a member of this church, as you might expect, there are certain things that the session requires of them. The first of these expectations is that they have attended services for a long enough time in this church to have a pretty good idea what kind of church we are and to be able to say that they are more or less comfortable with our faith and with our worship. Another of those requirements is the completion of a series of membership classes. And at the last of all of that, they fill out a membership application, an application that contains a statement that they are asked to read, think about very carefully, and then sign only if it expresses their faith and their experience. And it's a statement of very basic Christian experience and Christian faith. And when these steps are complete, in the absence of any known reason not to accept the applicant, the session meets to receive them into the church's membership. Every once in a while, a question comes up regarding this process. I've asked it of myself. It has come up in some of our discussions on session. And the question, in effect, is this. Should we be doing more than we currently do? to make sure that the people received into this church's membership are true Christian believers who are serious about living a Christian life? Should we insist that they be able to give a convincing testimony of the time in their life when they first turned to Christ in repentance and faith and passed through the gates of the kingdom of God? Should they be given a test to determine the extent of their knowledge of the Bible and core Christian beliefs? Should they be asked probing questions about their appreciation and their practice of the basic disciplines of the Christian life, such things as worship and Bible study, prayer, and stewardship? And the reason this question comes up from time to time is the probability that over the years we have admitted into the membership of the church people who aren't perhaps true Christians or who aren't really committed to living a Christian life. It's interesting to remember, though, that every time the question has come up to this point, every time the elders have taken a fresh look at the process that we put people through before they become members, it's been decided that our long-standing practice is adequate and probably shouldn't be altered. But if at some point in the future the church's leaders should decide that more does need to be done, that we have to find ways to make sure that our membership is made up only of true Christians who have a good understanding of the faith that saves us and a real dedication to Christian living, what standards should they establish to accomplish that end? Two people are sitting outside the room where the session is meeting, acting on membership applications. One of them is the kind of person that I've just described, a real Christian, serious about Christian living. 
But the other is a pseudo-believer, a person who says that he's a Christian, a person who really believes that he is a Christian, but really doesn't understand what that means, and probably at that point in his life really isn't a Christian. What questions could the elders ask? What examination could they conduct to be able to tell the difference between these two people? In other words, what are the differences between Christians and non-Christians? On this Thanksgiving Sunday, I'd like to consider that question with you. It's a silly thing to suggest, but in the interest of being thorough, we need to ask, are there differences in the physical appearances of believers and non-believers? Is it possible to tell just by looking at a person whether or not he is a Christian? It's not as foolish a question as it might seem at first. For all of us notice differences in people. And most of us are inclined to make judgments about the value or the worth of the people on the basis of what we can see with the eye. Surveys indicate that tall people are more likely to be respected and followed than short people. Most of us prefer to be seen with beautiful people rather than ugly people. The thoughts of a well-manicured man in a neat business suit are given greater immediate credence than those of a man in sloppy overalls. The most godly among us is prone to such prejudices as these. You remember this mistake that Samuel almost made in the home of Jesse, where he was told by God not to look on the outward appearance of these potential kings, but to follow the leading of the Lord himself, who looks not on the outward appearance, but on the heart. In spite of the inclinations and prejudices of our nature, in moments of quiet thought, we know, in fact, that there are no physical differences between those who love Jesus on the one hand and those who care nothing about him on the other. Either might be tall or short, heavy or light, beautiful or ugly. Both can be athletic or bow-legged. Skin color, hair color, eye color, manual dexterity, muscular coordination, the ability to run fast and jump high, all of these categories and traits are found more or less equally distributed among believers and non-believers. It might have been, however, with this prejudice that is so natural to the flesh that Isaiah wrote of our Lord Jesus Christ years before he appeared in human history, when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. At first, we might believe, as I once did, in fact, that Isaiah was saying that when Jesus appeared, he would actually be an ugly man. But we know that isn't the case. We've all seen the pictures, right? I believe that what the prophet meant was that those who see Jesus and find themselves strangely drawn to him are not attracted by anything that they can see with their eyes, but rather by the beauty of his character and the magnificence of his nature, qualities that are seen only by the heart and sensed only by the spirit. If we're going to try to establish standards by which we can tell the difference between Christians and non-Christians, we have to look at something other than their physical appearance. Almost as silly, 
but again in the interest of being thorough, is the possibility that the differences between true believers and non-believers might lie in the areas of intelligence or giftedness. Again, the prejudices natural to our fallen nature enter the picture. Two men stand before a congregation as candidates for a single opening on its governing board. One of them seems to be more intelligent, is perhaps better educated than the other. Or one of the two is known to have a marvelous sense of humor or a wonderful singing voice. Wouldn't it be natural, as we know ourselves, for the brighter or more obviously gifted of the two to gain the most votes? And yet in moments of somber reflection, we know that real righteousness has nothing to do whatsoever with the brightness of a person's mind or with his ability to amuse or to entertain. These are the kinds of judgment that we need to be very careful to guard ourselves against and to guard the church we love against. In the time of the apostolic church, it's plain that some of the brightest men on earth were drawn to Christ and to his church and became useful advocates and effective defenders of the gospel. But at the same time, we need to remember that there were other equally bright minds that greeted Christ with indifference or were arrayed against him. In the former camp were the philosophers on Mars Hill. In the latter were those who used their minds first to invent questions intended to embarrass Christ publicly and later to plot his death. Today, there are brilliant minds in the kingdom of God, minds that delight in knowledge, minds used by God to sharpen the understanding of Christian believers and to defend the gospel against its enemies. But there are equally bright minds in the world that resist God and despise his son and will do their very best to destroy the church and the faith that bear his name. And in the world today, there are people with great senses of humor, people with marvelous talent, some of whom use their gifts to honor and serve the God who is the source of those gifts. But many others squander those gifts, using them for their own benefit and for their own advancement. And while brightness and humor and talent are wonderful qualities, their presence in a person's life says nothing at all about that person's relationship with God. If the elders are going to devise a means by which the differences between true and pseudo-Christians can be determined, they're going to have to look beyond all of this. Some, especially those steeped in what we proudly call our Reformed tradition, would encourage us to look at the relative success and prosperity of people to determine the reality of the faith that they claim. These folks would have us examine the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And notice the fact that even in the often compromised state of their faith, God blessed them as his covenant people to the extent that they stood head and shoulders above their neighbors in power and in prosperity. They would encourage us to consider the examples of Joseph and Daniel in the Old Testament how each of them was taken captive as a youth and forced to spend the rest of his days living among pagan idolaters. Yet each of them was blessed by God and lifted to a position of great influence and wealth. 
They would remind us of the closing chapters of the law, where we find certain promises and warnings issued by God himself. Calling the attention of his people to his law, God said that he would bless them in many conspicuous ways if they kept his law, and that he would punish them in equally conspicuous ways if they were disobedient. For such reasons as these, a part of our heritage is the view that those who honor God by living righteous lives, by being people of goodwill, and by working hard, that they will be blessed by God. They will have healthier lives, stronger families, and relatively greater prosperity than their neighbors. And therefore, these folks would tell us the session would be well advised to look at such qualities of life when acting on membership applications. Now, I have a problem with all of this, and perhaps some of you do as well. My problem derives in part from the uncertainty that promises made to the patriarchs and the people of Israel also apply to us as Christians. Some of those promises and warnings clearly apply to us. Some of them clearly do not apply to us. In which category are these promises of health and wealth? The test is the repetition of such things in the general epistles of the New Testament, where, in my understanding, these promises are not found. I take issue with this kind of expectation and judgment because James, in the New Testament book that bears his name, took exception to it. He scolded Christians who showed favoritism to the rich and discriminated against the poor, evidently assuming that the wealth of the one was a necessary sign of the blessing of God. Another reason I have for the difficulty with this view, this view of the necessary connection between one's faithfulness and righteousness on the one hand and his prosperity and success on the other, is found in certain New Testament records. James was one of the Lord's first disciples. He was one of the three closest to Christ, chosen to be with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. James was slain brutally in a time of early persecution against the church. Peter, one of the Lord's most faithful servants, is quoted at one time as saying, silver and gold have I none. For the righteousness of his life and for his bold defense of the gospel, Stephen was stoned to death. And Paul described the rewards that he received for godly living and faithfully preaching the gospel in this way. He said, I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in cold and naked. Paul says these were his rewards for being faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, the one we call Lord, the most holy of men, died in such abject poverty that as he was struggling on the cross, his bored executioners cast lot for his only possession, and that was the blood-stained robe that he wore to Calvary. 
We consider all of this, and it becomes rather obvious that if the church ever looks for a way to differentiate between real believers and pretenders, an examination of their resumes and a review of their bank books and stock portfolios is probably not that way. Someone might suggest that we engage the services of a private detective to follow these people around every day and keep a careful log of his observations. After all, didn't Jesus say, by their fruits you will know them? Now, we understand that when Jesus said that, he wasn't talking about believers. He was talking about false teachers. But there are many other passages that indicate that the real faith of a real believer ought to be expected to bear fruit in his life. And thus the suggestion is not immediately unreasonable. By the way, did you know, whether you're a member of this church or not, that there is someone who follows you around every day? Someone who makes notes on all that he observes? Someone who listens to your every conversation? knows all about your personal habits and your thoughts. Both his records and his memory are without flaw, and there is no escaping his scrutiny. Doesn't that make you uneasy? When you leave, doesn't that make you want to look over your shoulder? The observer of whom I speak, of course, is none other than the God that we have gathered to worship today. And knowing all that he knows about us makes us all the more aware of our desperate need for that atonement that Jesus purchased on the cross and the mercy that continues to flow from his wounds. But back to the point. What could a detective tell us about prospective new members that would be useful to the session in deciding on their membership? Now, granted, in the wider world in which we live, there are many, many people living patently sinful lives. Men and women and young people who not only blatantly violate the standards of God, but almost dare God to try to do anything about it. But these folks aren't very likely to be found applying for membership in this church or any other. Our investigator might find an occasional and obvious indiscretion, but most applicants like most church-going Americans through most of our history, are living lives that conform outwardly, at least, to the standards of the church. And I suspect that such an effort would hardly be worth its cost. Another possibility is that we examine lives to look for the smallest of blessings that might be indicators of real faith in Jesus Christ. Not the great blessings of conspicuous wealth and success, but blessings in the little things of life. But if this were proposed, I trust that a few, I would hope that all of the elders would remember that Jesus once said that God makes his sun shine on the evil as well as on the good and sends rain on the just as well as on the unjust. And this raises a suspicion in our minds that there might be very little discernible difference between the common blessings of God known by believers and by non-believers. Both know the fullness of a day well spent at one's labor and the refreshment of the rest that comes at the end of such a day. 
Each is acquainted with the satisfaction of the company of kindred spirits, the aroma and taste of good food, the melodies and rhythms of good music. In the spring of life, both have known the pleasures of the marriage chambers and the delights of the laughter of children. And in the winter of life, both are warned by memories of such things. The stirring beauty of the sunrise, the calming benediction of sunset, the smell of spring's first flower, the tingle of winter's first snowfall, are pleasures known by Christians and non-Christians alike. The comfort of a human embrace, the thrill of a winning field goal, feeling small in the mountains, feeling important in the voting booth, are blessings of life available to all regardless of their faith because of the goodness of our God. In the 145th Psalm, it is said to God, in the spirit of worship, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. No person's life is devoid of the blessings of God. Every person's life is filled with evidences of his kindness. Well, if the difference between us as believers and non-believers isn't found in these common blessings, what is the difference? The chief difference between those who trust and love Christ and those who don't isn't the presence in their lives of signs of the love of God, but rather in their response to them. In the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul quotes Isaiah in this way, Eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And in Matthew 13, Jesus is overheard speaking to his disciples about things the unbelieving world cannot see or know. And to them as his disciples, he said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. The sun shines, and the rain falls in the life of the unbeliever, and he delights in these blessings of God. But he sees only the blessings, and not the God who has given them. The sun shines and rain falls on the life of a believer, and he also delights in the blessings received, but then lifts his heart and voice in songs and prayers of praise to their giver. It wasn't a group of atheists and agnostics. It wasn't a community of deists and pagans, but a band of Christian people we've come to know as the pilgrims, who suffered horribly through their first winter in the new world, but who, at the first harvest scraped from its harsh soil, appointed a special time to give thanks to the God who had sustained them in their deprivations and blessed them in ways known only to them. This expression of their Christian faith gave birth to a national tradition that persists to this day. We call it Thanksgiving. These are thankless times in which we live. We live in an age in which all attention is given to the whiners, to the occupiers, the protesters, and those with chips on their shoulders. From the well-manicured, polished men and women running for the nation's highest office, 
to the unkempt adolescents in their stinking encampments near Wall Street. From books written by Michael Moore in his mansion on Torch Lake to the editorial pages of our local newspapers. All that we seem to hear and read is what's wrong with life in general and what's wrong with life in America in particular. May it not be so among us. Simply by being here, we claim to be the followers of Jesus Christ, a people saved by his blood, filled by his spirit, adopted forever as children by his Father. Every day, but especially as we prepare our minds and hearts for this coming Thursday with our families and friends, let's hear the admonition of our God. He says to us, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In all things, give thanks. Today, Thursday, and always, may we be found a thankful people. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, you call us and you empower us to rise above all of the wounds and the inhibitions and the limitations of the flesh. You call us to be larger than life. You call us to focus not on our days, but on that eternity that transcends our days. In spite of the age in which we live and the moods of the people around us, you call us to be a joyful people, a peaceful people, a gentle people, a thankful people. Oh God, may we hear your voice and respond, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.